Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Let us pray for the Lord's blessing on our consideration of this passage. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God, for the grace of God, for the salvation that comes from you, purposed in all eternity, applied by the power of an effectual call, secured by the justification of your people, and preserved unto everlasting glory. Have mercy upon us as we consider these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our consideration of God's golden chain, the chain from eternity past, as we say, to eternity future. We'll look at this golden chain, part five, justification in the New Testament. We'll consider this hopefully in two parts, uh, today, part one, and God willing, next Sabbath, part two. In review, we looked at justification in the Old Testament. We saw the comparative righteousness of Tamar and Judah from Genesis 38. The presumptuous judges judged in Exodus 23:7. We saw that human courts are to function according to civil laws. They must only admit evidence and draw judgments to justify those who are innocent and condemn those who are wicked, Deuteronomy 25. We saw in 1 Kings 8.32 the competing claims in human courts that God is the ultimate judge and he will justify those who are righteous and condemn those who are wicked. We saw in Psalm 51 verse 4 that God is justified when we confess our sins. We saw in 82 verse 3 to render righteous judgment to the poor and afflicted godly is a form of justification to declare their righteousness in the courts. We saw in Psalm 143 verse 2 that universal sinfulness of man makes justification in God's courtroom impossible. All men would be condemned. There could be none justified. We saw the crime in Isaiah 5.23 of abusing civil power to declare wicked men righteous so that the judge could get a reward. We saw the idolaters called to justify their gods as witnesses on their behalf in Isaiah 43, verse 9. We saw men pleading with God to seek self-justification, again Isaiah 43, but this time verse 26. We saw that in union with the Lord himself in Isaiah 45, 25, that if we are united to the Lord, all the chosen seed shall be justified and boast in his righteousness. We saw in Psalm 53, 11, that Christ's knowledge would justify many as he would bear their iniquities. We saw the self-justification of Israel and Judah in Jeremiah 3, 11. They declared their own righteousness 
based off of their own opinion of themselves. And then we saw the comparative justification of one wicked nation by the absolute total wickedness of another in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 51 and 52. Again, a comparative justification. This one is so bad that this one is justified in comparison to her sister. We saw then this doctrine that the Old Testament usage of the word to justify is manifold, but mainly it relates to courts, to evidence, and to imputation. Doesn't mean, in other words, to infuse righteousness into someone, as if David, by confessing his sins, could infuse righteousness into God. No, he justified God by confessing his sins, by declaring the righteousness of God and saying all the evidence stacks up against me, none of it stacks up against God. Therefore, God is righteous and he declared him to be so. Nor does Tamar's wickedness somehow justify her, but in comparison to Judah, she is declared to be righteous when she brings forth in court the evidence that Judah was at fault worse than her. So we see justification in the Old Testament deals with imputation, with courts, and with declarations. Now then, considering the New Testament in this word justification, as we saw in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. God is the one who justifies in this context. It is in the courtroom of God. He is the judge. And God has foreknown a specific group of people. He's predestinated those same people. He's called those same people all by his almighty power. And he justified those very same. Now, notice, we'll consider the New Testament usage of this word justify. Please open to Matthew chapter 11, page 972. Matthew chapter 11, page 972. Now there are 40 occurrences of this verb to justify in the New Testament. We're going to look at 20 of those today, God willing, and 20 next Sabbath. And I want you to get a flavor for how this word is used. There is some range of usage but I believe it falls within the same parameters as the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 16. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Notice there, wisdom is justified. That is a name of God, by the way. God is wisdom. God has children that he begets by his almighty power. 
And when God's children believe God's word, they declare that God is righteous. Now notice the false judges. What do they do? Jesus says, they're like little children. They'll sing one tune that's happy, and they say you're supposed to dance. Then they'll sing another tune that's sad and say, you're supposed to now mourn with us. You're subject to our whims, in other words, these false judges. You do what we say. We call the tune, you dance or you lament. And notice their false judgments. John came neither eating nor drinking, and what's their conclusion? You don't eat, well, in other words, you don't eat like the rest of us, the same meats we all, meet, we all eat. You don't drink, you don't partake in wine. So what's the conclusion? You have a devil. That a reasonable conclusion to make? You're uh, inspired by Satan because you don't eat and drink with us? Not really reasonable, is it? Very unrighteous. Now, here comes someone else doing the exact opposite. And here he is eating and drinking. He eats like you. He drinks like you. What's the conclusion you should draw? Oh, he's the opposite of John, so he's righteous, right? Is that what they say? No. You're a glutton. You're a wine-bibber. You're a friend of publicans and sinners. See their judgments? Does that make any sense? They can't win. Jesus and John cannot win with these people. They will condemn them no matter what. But God, who saved and called these publicans and sinners and made them his children, these publicans and sinners justified God and said, I believe the word that John preached. I'll receive his baptism. We'll find this in the other passages. I will submit to John's baptism. I will believe the word he speaks. I'll believe in Jesus Christ. I will justify God and declare him to be righteous. Again, it has to do with evidence. It has to do with declaration. It has to do with judgments. Turn over to Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 37. Matthew 12, 37. We'll start at verse 33, pardon me. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now notice here, the words of men have a twofold function. And where is this? Well, it's in God's final judgment, isn't it? God sits to judge at the end of time. And God will say, well, what did you say? 
tell me what was in your mouth. But earlier in the chapter, what did we find out about the mouth? From the abundance of the heart, what is in the heart of man, his mouth will speak. So this justification has evidence. It is declarative in nature. And what, pray tell, is God justifying? Is this the same justification that we receive by faith? No, of course not. God is here saying, you said you believed in the Lord, and you, on the one hand, spoke these evil things so that you said Jesus is demon-possessed. Those were the words that proceeded out of their mouth in the context. And because they were a generation of vipers, their heart was so corrupt they couldn't speak anything else. So they were condemned by their words because it showed what was in their hearts. So the godly, when they are justified by their words, it's to declare that they actually had faith. In their hearts was a radically transformed new man saved by the grace of God, justified by words. Please turn over to Luke chapter 7 page 1034 of your pew Bibles. Luke chapter 7, we'll look at verses 26 through 30. Verse 26, what, But what went ye out for to see a prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Notice here, again, the idea of justifying God. Those who believe his message, those who trusted in his messenger, those who understood that John was the prophesied coming one to prepare the way for God in the flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, those who believed John in that way justified God. They declared his righteousness. They declared that these Pharisees were wrong and that God through John was right. Justifying God himself. Look down at verses 31 through 35. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Whereunto shall I liken this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace. Remember this? And it's the same thing. Verse 35, wisdom is justified. Same thing. Wisdom is declared right. The evidence is on God's side, not on the Pharisees. Please turn to Luke 10, page 10,040. Luke 10, verse 25. Verse 25, 
And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. Do this, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then we have the parable of the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and the Samaritan helping him after his beating and robbing. But here, notice, the man was willing to do what? Sit as judge in his own case and declare himself as righteous. Now, how was he going to do that? Because after all, he wanted, as you see at the beginning, he wanted to inherit eternal life. And he wanted to know what are the deeds I must do to inherit eternal life. Now, you, Jesus, you have made me come in and confess this, that I must love God completely and I must love my neighbor as myself. So then Jesus says, that's right. If you do this, what will happen? You'll be justified. You'll inherit. You will live. You will have eternal life should you keep this law with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Love God. And every time you interact with someone who is your neighbor, you must love him as you love yourself. That's what you must do in order to inherit eternal life. That's what you must do and you shall live. But he, willing to declare himself righteous based off of his works, tries to find a way out. There's some people I know I haven't treated the right way, but they're not my neighbor, you see? My neighbor includes all of the Jews out there who are just like me and think like me. Not those Jews who don't think like me. Not those Jews that I don't see. Only those ones like me, all of us Pharisees. We all agree with each other. We all love each other. We greet each other in the marketplaces. Oh, it's great. Who then is my neighbor? I would like to declare myself to be righteous. So I want to figure out an end run around the law. The law says love my neighbor. I don't love my neighbor. Unless I define my neighbor as those who love me, then I'm good. And why does Jesus tell the parable of the Good Samaritan? So that we can say I can be justified by being a Good Samaritan? Just the opposite. You cannot justify yourself, in other words, because you're too wretched and wicked. This man wants to cover his sin so that he can justify himself. Remember the Philistines? We're going to burn your house down and kill you and dad and everybody else unless you tell me the secret. Then we'll spare your life. Well, we'll find out they still kill her. But for now, we'll spare your life. Justifying themselves because you came to steal our stuff. So we have the right to kill you. 
Please turn over to Luke 16 for the next occurrence of this word to justify, page 1049. Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Notice here, the Pharisees justified themselves. They presented their case. They presented their evidence of righteousness where? Could they go before God's courtroom? Well, they had the audacity to think so. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? But here Jesus shows them, how far does your righteousness go? How far will your evidence get you? What will that righteousness of yours actually produce, well, you might get some men to approve of you. Period. Full stop. That's it. You have your reward. You will be declared righteous before men. That's it. That's all you can have. You can have a human righteousness. You can have the court of men declare you to be righteous, but that's it. You can try to justify yourselves all you want, but I know your evil deeds. That's what he's saying. I have evidence on you that you worship a false god. You're covetous, and you cannot serve two masters. And why do they make fun of him? Why do they deride our Lord when he says these things? You know why? Because then they think, I don't have to listen to him. If I say, who are you? You're garbage. Your, your mom was a whore. That's what they said about Mary. You're begotten of fornication. Why should we listen to you? You're the carpenter's son. You never were educated down here in Jerusalem. They deride him. Why? Because what he says is true. And they don't want to listen to it. They want to justify themselves before men, Jesus says. That's the only place you can justify yourself by your deeds, by the way. Turn over to chapter 18, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. <clears throat> Luke 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. 
And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now this, by the way, is how justification justifies God. Our justification justifies God because it says, I'm a sinner. God, be merciful. I don't deserve anything from you. I don't think of myself as righteous, as having some kind of inherent righteousness that I could present to you. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's why he told this parable. So that by the end of the parable, you realize if you trust in yourself that you're righteous, you're not actually righteous. It's only if you abandon all hope of your own righteousness that God will justify you. That's the point of the parable. That's why he spoke it. He spoke it to them which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This man went down to his house justified, referring in context to the nearest antecedent, the thing that went before. When he says this man, he's not talking about the Pharisee. He's talking about the publican, the sinner, the man who would not lift up his eyes unto heaven, but pointed to his sacrifice and said, be propitiated. That's what it means to be merciful. Turn your wrath away from me onto the sacrifice. Because I'm the sinner, he says. I'm the guilty one here. This guy's righteous. I'm the sinner. And God justifies the publican. Please turn over to Acts chapter 13, page 1111 of your pew Bibles. The next occurrence of this verb, to justify. Now we could look at all the related terms of righteous as an adjective, righteous men as a noun, but we're just looking at this verb to justify. Acts 13, we'll read verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, there is a twofold inability in Moses to justify you from your sins. One is that the sacrifices themselves do not have the power to take away sins. The institution for the forgiveness of sins is insufficient, it is temporary. It is provisional. It is shadowy, not substantial. It represents Christ. It is not actually Christ himself. That's one way. Now, the other way is that if you believe that you are a good person, that you do good things, and you do these good things so that you may inherit eternal life, the law of Moses can't justify you either. It can tell you what you ought to do, not what you can do. And that's what the law does. So when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
He told him the law of Moses in summary fashion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says you ought to do to inherit eternal life. Can you do it? Here, Paul answers the can I question, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who trusts in his death upon the cross for them, has the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins preached to them and says, Amen, I believe. They have their sins forgiven. They are received and declared righteous before God from every single thing that the law of Moses could not justify them. Neither in the sacrifices of atonement, in the priesthood, in the temple, nor in the moral law published in Ten Commandments. They could not be justified by any of those things, but in believing in Jesus, they are justified from all, he says. That is very good news. Please turn over to Romans chapter 2, page 1134. The next instance of the verb to justify. Romans 2, verses 6 through 13. The context here is God's impartiality, who will render to every man according to his deeds, verse 6, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law, for not the, do the hearers of the law are just before God, but note, the doers of the law shall be justified. Notice here, this is a statement about God's manner of justification. God is impartial. And if you come before God and you want to make an excuse for yourself, an apology, as verse 1 says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. If you want to condemn the Gentile and say, I'm a righteous man because I'm a Jew, but you haven't kept all the law of God, well, will you be justified? No, because it's not the mere possession of the word in your ears that justifies according to the law of God, it is when you actually do what the law says, then God will justify you. You shall be justified. It is passive. You shall not justify yourself, middle voice. You shall not justify others by declaring them righteous, active voice. You shall be justified. By whom? By God himself. After a course of well-doing, in obedience to all of his commandments, he shall declare you to be righteous. That's what it means to justify. If it were God infusing righteousness, that would happen before the obedience. But is it before obedience here? No. 
It's after patient continuance in well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality by obedience to all of God's laws at all times in every way. God will impartially judge Jew and Gentile. You have done my law. You are justified. You are declared based upon the evidence you present to me righteous in my judgment. In my courtroom, God says, I'll judge the doers of the law as just. Look over at chapter 3, verse 4, next page over. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. That's a quotation, you remember? Psalm 51, he's quoting Psalm 51, verse 4. And he's saying here, if God is declared to be true, that's his justification. If every man is a liar, that's their condemnation. You see, we're coming to judge here with God. God will be justified, we will be condemned. Look down at verses 20 through 30. We have here five occurrences on the next page over. Five occurrences in Romans 3 of this verb, justify. Starting there at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Notice there. Where is the courtroom where we appear? God's sight. Before his face, before his judgment seat, all mankind will appear there before God and will have nothing to say about what they did in keeping God's commandments. All flesh will be condemned. The deeds of law, that is literally what it says, those things done in obedience to some kind of command. I don't care if it's Jesus' commands, Moses' commands, it does not matter. If you come before God and say, I as flesh, I shall be justified by my keeping of the law of love, of the Sermon on the Mount, of my good works of charity done, God says, go to hell. No flesh shall be declared righteous in his sight. Why? You know what law does, don't you? Law tells you what sin is. Because sin is a transgression of the law. Sin is lawlessness. Law says, here's the right way. You must walk in it. Now, do you? Do I? No. So when we come before God, can we say, I kept law, you justify me. I continued in well-doing. I did good things. I've trusted in myself that I am righteous. God says, away in my sight, you shall not be justified by what you have done. Now notice verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, being justified. It is passive. God is the one who's doing the justification. God is declaring us to be righteous. And what, pray tell, is the price that we paid to be justified before God? You know, you have to bribe a judge, don't you? In the Old Testament, in a civil court, how would they get the judge to declare them to be righteous when they were actually wicked? Money. They paid him. God says, freely. He justifies the ungodly freely by his grace. Not because we deserve it. Not because we've done anything to earn it. God is gracious through. How can he do this? How can he just overlook our sins? How can he pretend like we are righteous? He's not pretending. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that's how, that's how God can justify us freely because on our part, we pay nothing. On Jesus' part, he pays it all. That's what redemption is. It's where you buy a slave out of his chains. You buy a captive from his captivity. I will pay the price, Jesus says. I will redeem the captives. I will bring them forth and set them free. And note verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Here, notice again, God set forth Jesus to soak up his wrath. That's what a propitiation is. Heliosterion. It's the place where the, the fire from heaven should come down upon me. But there's a sacrifice. It's the same word the publican used. God be propitiated toward me. Well, where is the propitiation? Here it is. Jesus, the Christ, is the propitiation. God put him up upon the cross, set him forth. That's our redemption. That is the price. We believe in his blood. We trust in his death. And God is called the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The justifying one. That's God's name. That is a periphrase for God himself. God is the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. This is very good news. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Notice, how is a man declared righteous? By believing in what Jesus already did. Not by deeds of law. Not by keeping of the new law or the old law of Jesus' law or Moses' law or Paul's law or the apostolic law or Peter's law or John's law or James' law. None of the laws issued or the Buddhist laws or Confucius' laws or Muhammad's laws or Black Lives Matter laws or Antifa's laws or American laws or international laws. None of these laws do any good to justify a sinner in the sight of God. 
They might justify you before men. Men might declare, that's a righteous man. Will God declare you to be so? No. Only him that believeth in Jesus, it is God's name, the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Note there, verse 30. Or excuse me, verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, passive, without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. What is the difference between the method of God justifying a Jew and a Gentile? Do you know what the difference is? It tells us right here, doesn't it? It's the difference between by and through. Are those any different? No, they're not. God's going to justify the Jew and the Gentile in precisely the same way because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Justification then in this passage is God's declaration, not of what we have done, not of approval of prior works, but approval of his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you believe in him? Then God is well pleased with you as well. Look over at Romans 4, down just a little bit on the same page. Two passages or two occurrences here in verses 2 through 6. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness." even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Now here, note verse 2. If Abraham were justified, this is a, uh, what we call a conditional statement. It assumes something that is not actually the case for the sake of an argument. If he were justified by works, was he? No, he wasn't. He hath whereof to boast, to glory. That's the idea. Yeah, look at me. Look what I did. Abraham could say that if he were justified by works. But what does Paul say? But not where? Before God. Could he justify himself to men? Prove that he had faith? Absolutely. James says so. Could he justify himself before God? Absolutely not. We know enough about Abraham to know that he was not perfect in his obedience to God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted that his faith was counted unto him for righteousness. Then he gives the general principle, the covenant of works. For to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. God owes it to you if you're justified by works. He's indebted to you. He must pay you back wages if it's by work. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on who? What's God's name? Him that justifieth the ungodly. 
That's a relative participle. It's telling us something about God. The justifying one. The one justifying the ungodly. The impious. Those like Abraham who do not fear God. And yet God is going to declare something about them that in the realities of the case cannot be true. This cannot be true that Abraham is declared righteous, and yet Abraham believes on the Son of God yet to come. Abraham has righteousness imputed unto him without works, righteousness reckoned to him, counted unto him. Why? Because he believed in the seed of Abraham. He believed in our Lord Jesus Christ. He rejoiced to see his day. He saw it and was glad. And when he took his son up to slaughter him on Mount Moriah, and he saw a ram caught in the thickets, and he brought the ram and moved his son aside, you know what he saw? The gospel before his eyes. There is a lamb of God who will take away your sins, who will die in your place. Abraham was not justified by works. The next occurrences are in chapter 5, and we'll conclude with these occurrences here. Abraham, or excuse me, Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified, we have. That's the way this works. It's a participle. Having been justified in the past, we currently possess this thing called peace with God. In fact, the reason we have peace with God grammatically as this is constructed is because we've been justified by faith. God has justified us and all he requires is that we believe his promise. Look down at verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We have been justified by faith. That is the instrument we lay hold of Christ. But what is it about Christ that we lay hold of? Well, it's his death, isn't it? So we are justified by faith. We're also justified by his blood. It's the grounds upon which God causes us to live because his son has died. I note then this doctrine concerning the usage of the word to justify in the New Testament, this doctrine. The New Testament usage of justification is manifold, but mainly relates to court, to evidence, and to imputation. The New Testament usage is manifold, but mainly relates to courts, to evidence, to imputation. And because this is the case, the impossibility of man establishing this declaration based upon deeds of law. Okay, so here it is. God sits in his court. God judges. And when God judges, he looks at all the facts and all the evidence. And because God looks at all the facts and all the evidence, there is no man living that will be justified by deeds. There's no one who will say, look at these good things I've done. Whether Jew or Gentile, Paul concludes, God has put all men under sin. 
There's no justification for any flesh by deeds of law. Because God is a just God. God is a righteous God. God is a judge who will never fail and will see all the evidence and never make a mistake in his judgments. But God is the justifier of the ungodly. God is the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. How can God reckon that without the evidence in the person himself? There is a word I want you to remember. It is parakletos. Parakletos. It means an advocate. It means an attorney. It means one who acts on your behalf in a court of law. Jesus Christ is our parakletos. He is our advocate. He is the one who comes in and pleads what in court? What does Jesus plead when he goes before the Father's judgment for his people? Does he say, Mike was a good guy. He sure worked hard. He sure was friendly. He was kind to everybody. Mike, good job. I plead your righteousness. No, Jesus Christ pleads his righteousness. He comes and says, Mike is covered in my robe of righteousness. Mike is washed in my blood. You see the difference? He can't say, little bit of Mike's, little bit of mine. It doesn't work that way. God justifieth the ungodly. God declares them righteous freely based off of the payment made by Jesus himself to release them from the bonds of sin and death. Praise God indeed. God takes the evidence of that obedience of his son and says, here stands a perfect obedience. Here stands an absolute fulfillment of all righteousness in all points at all times through the entirety of his life in thoughts, words, and deeds toward God and toward his neighbor. This obedience passes the test. That's Jesus, what he did while he was on the earth. Obedient to the Father, even all the way to the death of the cross. Then God says, here stands this debt. Here stands all the sin that these people have committed. I must deal with the sins. I must deal with the demand of obedience. And I must deal with the breach of the law. And Jesus does both. Jesus took upon himself on the cross the sins of his people. He died for them. He paid the debt. He redeemed them. This is the gospel. Our sins put upon him his righteousness covering us. Now, what then of this pitiful attempt to establish a cooperation in justification? What then of this pauperism that says, well, to justify means to put righteous into you, to make you a righteous person? Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 2? If you do all these good deeds, then you shall be justified. You have to have the righteousness on the Roman view before you start the obedience. You have to be radically transformed inside first before you can obey. But God says he justifies after you obey. 
based off of whether or not you kept his commandments. And the point of that covenant of works is not as the Pelagians dreamed. The commands of God don't tell you what you can do. They tell you what you ought to do. If God says, make yourself a new heart, does that mean you can do it or you ought to do it? If God says, do this and live, does that mean you can do this and live or you ought to do it? Well, it's obvious. God tells dead men to rise up. Can they do it? Ought they to do it? Yes. And who is it that fulfills the ability for the dead to rise? None other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives life through his resurrection. We see then that there is no infusion of righteousness. Justification means to look at the evidence in a court, whether literal or figurative, whether human or divine, and to say, this man is declared righteous based off of these things that he has done. That's what it means to justify. Or God says, I'll take a substitute and I'll take his righteousness and I'll put your sins upon him so that I may justify the ungodly and still be just. God is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. No compromise of his justice. Do you realize that? Is there any other religion that has a God who can forgive sins and not be unjust? No. Can Muhammad pay the price for your sins? Can the devil pay the price for your sins? Can Joseph Smith pay the price for your sins? Can the watchtower pay the price for your sins? Only God in the flesh can pay the price for your sins. Only he can redeem. And let us then, in light of this truth, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust to his righteousness. See in him the forgiveness of sins. See in him a loving God who loves not because of your deeds, but because of what his son Jesus has done for you. And thus far, the explanation of justification from the New Testament, part one. Let's pray.